Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and it is my pleasure to bring to you not one, but two teachings from R.C. Sproul on the topic of eschatology. The first teaching is on the parousia, or the second coming of Christ, and how that has been understood historically and within the realm of eschatology. And then the second talk that's going to follow right after the first talk is on time in the New Testament, how time is understood, specifically time as it relates to the second coming, the second coming in judgment, and what exactly that means. So we're going to have two talks, and then the following discussion will be the Reformation Roundtable discussion that happened amongst a group of men here in Lewis County. We want to see a distinctly Reformed church be planted here in the area. We don't have any Reformed churches in Lewis County anywhere, at least to our knowledge, and we would love to see one start up in the Centralia Chehalis area. Distinctly Reformed, biblically faithful, and all to the glory of God. Enjoy the teaching, and if you'd like to join us on these Reformation Roundtable Talks, Please reach out to me via the comment section or email me, joecstout at gmail.com. And I would love to get you on board and have you start coming to our meetings. Thanks very much. Enjoy the teaching. We're going to continue now with our study of eschatology. And I mentioned in our first session that we are experiencing a crisis of eschatology with specific reference to the attacks that have been launched against the credibility of the scriptures and also of the credibility of Jesus' prophecies concerning his own return. And I mentioned then, as I'll mention again, that I'm following the basic structure of my book entitled The Last Days According to Jesus. And I'll warn you again that the position that I'll take on these matters may seem uh, different from what you may uh, commonly hear on these subjects. But before we get to uh, my views and that sort of thing, I think it's important that we do a little historical reconnaissance of the critical theories that have come to uh, the forefront in the last uh, two centuries. The 19th century, in the field of theology, as well as in other academic disciplines, was dominated by theories of evolution. Now, we tend to think of evolution strictly in biological terms, but the uh, theoretical thought of the 19th century was strongly influenced by the philosophy of Frederick Hegel, who had an evolutionary view of all of history, not just of, uh, of, of biological developments among living species and so on, but all of the dynamic of history was cast against this backdrop of progressive evolution. And this was applied by scholars in the 19th century to the developments of religion. And the school that came out of this was called the uh, Religious Historical School. The Religious Historical School was a school of thought that dominated liberal theology in the 19th century that applied these principles of evolution to biblical religion, saying that biblical religion follows the same basic pattern 
that all religions follow in their historic development. That religion begins in a simple manner and then develops to a more complex viewpoint. It begins in animism with a view that uh, uh, supposedly inanimate objects are inhabited by spirits, usually evil spirits, and then you develop from that into uh, polytheism and henotheism, and finally, in a later time in history, you see the emergence of full-orbed monotheism. And the arguments, of course, were that biblical religion followed the same pattern of development. Now, hand-in-hand hand with the religious historical schools, application of evolutionary principles to the development of, of biblical religion was a powerful anti-supernatural bent that controlled the analysis of the content of the scriptures. So that anything that communicated miracle was rejected out of hand. Anything supernatural such as the virgin birth of Jesus, uh, the atonement as a cosmic event of reconciliation between the human and the divine, the resurrection, the ascension, and obviously the return of Jesus at the end of the age was also considered part of the mythological trappings that were included in the biblical documents. So, uh, this produced a crisis in the church in the 19th century, particularly in Europe, because you had thousands of uh, men who had been ordained into the Christian ministry and millions and millions of dollars invested in church buildings and in church programs, and all of a sudden the theologians are saying, uh, this is all a myth. Uh, so what do we do? Close the churches? cause all these preachers to be unemployed, or do we revise the, our understanding of Christianity in such a way as to make it compatible with modern theories of man and the world? Well, again, 19th century liberalism obviously chose the latter course and tried to reduce the significance of the teaching of the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus to a this-worldly concern for social and humanitarian issues. That the kingdom of God, which was the motif that the biblical scholars understood that unified the Old and the New Testaments, that central concept of the kingdom of God, which is announced as coming as at the beginning pages of the New Testament with the advent of John the Baptist, who called the people to repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand, that these scholars sought to redefine the meaning of the kingdom of God in terms of ethics and values. One of the leading thinkers of the 19th century in this regard was a man by the name of Albrecht Ritschel, a German scholar who argued that the teaching of Jesus must be understood not 
in supernatural terms of personal salvation, but rather in terms of the teaching of important human values. And that the kingdom of God has to do with social applications of the ethical teaching of Jesus so that people will begin to show love one to another, to care for the poor, and so on, which then gave uh, impetus later to Rauschenbusch's development of the so-called social gospel. And we know that ever since that time, there's been this, this uh, cleavage between so-called liberalism and conservatism over whether or not the basic mission of the church is simply to minister to the needs of human beings in this world, in this time, or whether one of the great needs of human beings is personal redemption uh, and reconciliation to God. Uh, when I was a student in seminary, I studied theology for a while under Dietrich Ritual, who was the grandson of Albrecht Ritual, the German theologian of whom I've just mentioned. But in any case, following this uh, development of 19th century uh, liberalism, <coughs> a book appeared early in the 20th century that uh, made a tremendous uh, impact on the whole field of biblical scholarship. And it was written by a very famous man, Albert Schweitzer. And we know of Schweitzer because of his uh, career as a musician, as a superb organist, and also as, uh, as a missionary, probably one of the most famous missionaries of all time. But he was, first of all, a, an academic uh, person, a scholar of the highest order. And his book uh, was translated into English under the title, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And what Schweitzer did was he analyzed and critiqued the whole drift of this evolutionary thought and revision of the New Testament concept of the kingdom of God that had become popular in 19th century liberalism. And Schweitzer himself was very much influenced by another scholar by the name of Johannes Weiss, or Wise, we would say, but it's Weiss in, in German. <coughs> And Weiss had, had argued, and had argued convincingly, that if we're going to take the New Testament documents seriously and the teaching of Jesus and the apostles seriously, we have to understand the teaching of the kingdom of God against a Jewish background of apocalyptic eschatology. Now, that sounds a little bit fancy, but... Uh, what basically Schweitzer was saying was that the message of Jesus and his teaching about the kingdom is unintelligible apart from the central focus of eschatology in it. <coughs> now, when Schweitzer talked about Jesus' eschatological view of the kingdom of God, he did not mean by the term eschatological what is normally simply meant by the term. Usually we use the term eschatological or eschatology simply to refer to the last things or the last times or the end times. 
a future orientation. But when Schweitzer talked about an eschatological kingdom, he meant a kingdom that comes not by a gradual, evolutionary, this-worldly, progressive development of ethics and so on, as the 19th century liberals were wont to describe it, but that this kingdom that Jesus spoke about that was coming would come catastrophically, suddenly, supernaturally, coming transcendentally from above, that the kingdom was something that God would bring from heaven, intruding into the normal process and progress of history. Now, understand this technical point. Schweitzer is saying, to try to interpret Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God and his future prophecies, the way the 19th century liberals were doing, were doing was fundamentally not only incorrect, but dishonest, not really dealing with the plain teaching of the text of Scripture. For Schweitzer, for the New Testament documents to be intelligible, you must take seriously their eschatological framework. Now, it sounds at this point like Albert Schweitzer was fighting for the angels and was a fierce defender of, of Christian orthodoxy. On the contrary, all he's saying at this point is, if we're going to be faithful in our academic understanding of what the New Testament is saying, we have to read it as it was written, namely, in its eschatological language and expectation. And he said, there's no doubt from the record that Jesus' view of the kingdom of God was one that would come from heaven catastrophically. And there were different points in Jesus' ministry where Jesus, according to Schweitzer, expected the breakthrough of that kingdom from heaven. According to Schweitzer, first, for example, when Jesus sent his 70 out to the various villages and towns of Israel announcing the kingdom of God, he expected that God would act and bring the kingdom to pass at that time. But it didn't happen. And so in Jesus' own consciousness, Jesus had to go through certain periods of delayed anticipation in his own consciousness. So that, for example, when he came to Jerusalem in the crisis moment of the triumphal entry, perhaps now God was going to bring the kingdom. Still didn't happen. But Jesus persisted with his expectation to the very end even to allowing himself to be arrested, to be convicted. And remember he spoke about, you know, you can't do this except I let you do it. I can call on legions of angels and they could save me, but he doesn't do it. He waits for God to intervene and intercede and to bring the kingdom. But finally, in his last moments on the cross, Jesus realizes it's not going to happen. And he cries out from the depths of his own agony and disillusionment, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus dies as a noble figure, as a great teacher who embodied the gospel of love, which Schweitzer sought to, uh, to preach around the world. But he died in disillusionment about his own expectation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, the value of Schweitzer is, of course, since Schweitzer's work, it's been next to impossible for serious scholars to treat the teaching of the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus and not realize that it is couched constantly in eschatological language. That's the contribution Schweitzer has made to this crisis. Of course, his, the downside is, though he argues for the eschatological centrality of Jesus' teaching, of course, Jesus was wrong, and he ended in disillusionment. Then he speaks of what is called in academic parlance, the parousia delay. That not only did Jesus have to delay his expectation of his coming and the manifestation of his glory, but the early church had to go through this same process of parousia for trog or, or delay, so that as time passed, the church had to make all kinds of adjustments to allow not only for the failure of the kingdom to come in Jesus' lifetime, but then the failure of Jesus to return in their lifetime. Which brings us now again to this question that we uh, set forth in our first lecture about the time frame references of the coming glory of Jesus. Now, not everybody rolled over and played dead with the uh, negative uh, conclusions of Schweitzer. Uh, scholars uh, came and tried to speak to this concept of this Perusia delay, and one of the most important was a British scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd, <coughs> who wrote on the Gospel of John and, and on the parables of Jesus, which are uh, focused on Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. You know in the parables he'll say the kingdom of God is like unto this, the kingdom of God is like unto that, and so on. C.H. Dodd is important for developing uh, what was called realized eschatology. Where Dodd sees that, for the most part, the predictions of Jesus Dodd takes to have reference to a time frame of the first century. And he assumes that we have to take seriously those time frame references of the nearness of the coming of Jesus. But he concluded that Jesus was not disillusioned and that these time frame references did not fail to materialize. But in fact, the future forecasts of Jesus did take place in the framework in which he said they would, but in a spiritual sense. For example, we go back to those uh, three texts that were so problematic. You won't go all over all of the cities of Israel until 
uh, you see the Son of Man coming in power. Well, the disciples did see the Son of Man uh, being manifested, the kingdom of God being manifested, because in the New Testament, the, uh, there are clear references to the presence of the kingdom of God. When John comes, John says the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus appears, he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus said, if you see me casting out Satan by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that the very presence of Jesus was a manifestation and a coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. Not only that, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in power. He says that was a reference to an event that took place within just a couple of weeks or so, namely the Transfiguration, where some who were there were eyewitnesses of the glorious appearance of Jesus. Or, in resurrection and ascension, in both resurrection and ascension, the glory of Jesus was made manifest to his disciples, and all of these things took place within the framework of that generation. So for Dodd, there was a completely realized future eschatology, and that the prophecies that Jesus made were not about some future event at the end of the age, but had to do with the spiritual manifestation that actually took place in the first century. Now, uh, two other men who contributed to these discussions significantly were Oscar Kuhlmann and Hermann Ritterboss, the Dutch New Testament scholar. Kuhlmann developed a theory that was called the D-Day analogy that uh, had quite a lot of, uh, uh, of adherence uh, in, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, well, actually shortly after World War II, where he talked about the analogy or the relationship between D-Day, uh, the Allied invasion of Normandy that took place in June of 1944, uh, many months before the capitulation of Germany. Uh, the war wasn't over until the following spring of 1945. But the turning point of the war was D-Day. And according to Kuhlmann, he said this, that just as D-Day signaled the end of the conflict of World War II, for all intents and purposes, the war was over by June of 1944, even though it didn't come to its actual conclusion until, what, April or May of 45. He said, so likewise, the future kingdom of what Jesus predicted decisively came to pass already with his earthly ministry, with his uh, resurrection, and with his ascension. And that the only thing left is kind of a postscript at the end of the age. But for all intents and purposes, the kingdom has come in power and glory, and the rest is just the uh, icing on the cake. 
But again, the question with this that immediately comes to the fore is, can you expect the end of the war to be 2,000 years after D-Day? That's where the analogy breaks down. Hermann Ritterboss takes a similar position, and he developed the concept in Dutch of what's called the alls and the noch niet, or the already and the not yet, in which he says, if we're going to understand the New Testament, we have to see that the kingdom of God has already come in large measure. There is an alls to the kingdom of God, an already. But yet there still remains, at the end of time, the final consummation of that kingdom, which has, not, which has come not yet, not neat. And so uh, tied with this is often the theory of primary and secondary fulfillment, namely that much of the pre preaching and teaching of the New Testament was fulfilled in its primary sense in, in biblical times, though it will have a secondary fulfillment at the end of the age. These are some of the different ways in which people have been approaching the question of the time frame references. Dispensationalism, by the way, sees it all in the future. And uh, we're going to be looking at a position uh, that incorporates various elements of these approaches, and we'll begin that analysis in our next session. One of the main problems that we encounter when we're trying to unravel difficult passages that deal with future things or with eschatology is the genre or form of literature in which many of the biblical prophecies uh, are cast. Uh, this form of literature is sometimes called apocalyptic literature, sometimes the nickname for the book of Revelation in the New Testament is that it's called the Apocalypse. You've heard of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. And that which characterizes apocalyptic literature is that it tends to be exceedingly rich in vivid graphic imagery that often takes on a symbolic meaning. If you read the book of Revelation, for example, and you see the golden bowls and the vials and the, and the stars and the various uh, images that are sprinkled throughout that book, we know that it is sometimes very, very difficult to get a hold of exactly what is being communicated through these somewhat arcane uh, uh, symbols. And also, it makes apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature open to the wildest kinds of speculation, where people find all kinds of hidden meanings in these symbols. And that accounts in part for some of the vast diversity that we see in views of uh, eschatology. But when we are looking at the problems that have been raised by higher critics about the credibility of the Bible and of Jesus, I want to look first and foremost at the Olivet Discourse for this reason, well, actually for a couple of reasons. One is because here is where the guns of criticism have been chiefly aimed, namely at Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives regarding His future coming. 
And second of all, that even though there are obviously elements to this discourse that are imaginative in the sense that uh, vivid imagery is employed, nevertheless the main thread of this discourse follows the normal didactic pattern of literature that we find throughout the Gospels. And also we see that the content of the Olivet Discourse is contained in all three of the so-called synoptic Gospels. So that we have Matthew's version in Matthew 24, Mark's version in Mark 13, and Luke's version in the 21st chapter of his Gospel. So one of the interesting things that if you have the time to do it, is to look at a harmony of the Gospels and compare in side columns the various nuances that are provided by all three of the synoptic writers. But again, this passage that is so crucial to our consideration of eschatology is called the Olivet Discourse because it was a discussion that Jesus had with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And in this session, I want to call your attention to Mark's rendition of the Olivet Discourse. Now, you know that Mark tends to be more terse and brief than the other synoptic writers. In fact, uh, one of the key Greek words that is found in Mark's uh, short gospel is the word euthus which means straightway or immediately. I mean, you can read Mark at one setting and you're almost out of breath by the time you're finished because it moves at such a rapid pace. Well, we look at the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel and we read these words. Then as he, that is Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now let me comment on this. Obviously the progression here is that the disciples have left the temple complex, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the uh, Mount of Olives is, is a, a stone's throw away from the city of Jerusalem that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. There's a valley in between. And the wall that is facing the Mount of Olives is the temple wall. And so, obviously, as they are leaving the temple area, Jesus makes this comment as he and his disciples are headed toward the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> he said, you see these stones here, not one stone will be left upon another. Now, one of the great ironies of this whole discussion about the credibility of the New Testament and the credibility of Jesus is that fulfillment of future prophecies have been one, or has been, one of the main arguments used by scholars to defend the authority of the Bible.
and its supernatural origin. Because how else could events that take place many, many years or centuries after the uh, prophecy has been given, can we explain uh, fulfilled prophecies, like the thousands of prophecies that have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus, down to the village in which he was born, that sort of thing. Well, in New Testament, in terms of New Testament prophecy, perhaps there are no two prophecies in the New Testament that are fulfilled with more astonishing historical accuracy which two prophecies, in terms of their fulfillment, should be enough to silence the mouths of critics forever. Jesus clearly predicted ahead of time the destruction of the Jewish temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and add to that the dispersion of the Jews to all parts of the world, as it was added in Luke 21. Now, we know that these prophecies were made before the time occurred where the temple actually was destroyed and the city was leveled by the Romans in the year 70 A.D. That date, 70 A.D., for the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Herodian temple is one of the best attested dates for anything that ever happened in the ancient world. We simply flat out know what year that took place. Now, prior to that, some 40 years, or close to 40 years before the event, Jesus of Nazareth is reported by the gospel writers, some of which are undoubtedly written prior to this event. He predicts a future event that was absolutely unthinkable to the Jew of that day, to say that that temple with its Herodian stones, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world, would be completely raised. And that for the Jew to think that the sacred city of Jerusalem would be annihilated and trodden underfoot by Gentiles was not something that people guessed at by way of, of projecting prognostications. These were radical predictions about the future, and that they came to pass with such astonishing accuracy, as I said, is, should be grist for the ap ap apologetic mill. Unfortunately, it's because in the same context in which Jesus makes these predictions about this, the temple and Jerusalem, that he talks about his coming in clouds of glory. And that becomes part of the mix of the prophecy. And that part is the part that is problematic with respect to its fulfillment. Here, that text, which should be one of the greatest proofs of the credibility of Jesus and of the Bible, has become the very text that the critics hone in on to refute the Scriptures and the claims of Christ. But we see at the beginning the prediction about the destruction of the temple. Verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? 
Now you get the question. Jesus sits down with his disciples. He's just made this incredible prediction. And they're asking him two questions. Tell us when. Not where, not how, not what, not who. When? That is a question with respect to time. The disciples want to know when this is all going to happen. It's as simple as can be. It's plain uh, interrogative here. And the second question is, what will be the sign? What will point us to the moment? What will lead us or guide us to an awareness of the imminence of these things? When will all of these things take place? What will be the sign? Well, those are the questions. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. Now, these things that Jesus just spells out have to do with the answer to the question of what will the sign of the fulfillment of all these things be. And in popular nomenclature, these events that he talks about that have to take place, wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, famines, earthquakes, and all of that sort of thing, are popularly called in Christian nomenclature, what? The signs of the times. Just recently, I read an article where somebody was giving a study of the increased frequency of measurable earthquakes in the 20th century over earlier centuries, the number of famines that have been reported around the world, the amount of violence that's been recorded in the 20th century with the wars and rumors of wars that we've had, all in the service of coming to the conclusion that Christ is coming any day now because we're seeing the signs of the times rapidly being fulfilled. So again, the majority of futuristically oriented interpreters of the uh, Olivet Discourse see all of these things that Jesus is saying here as signs that will not take place until literally thousands of years after the time that the prophecy was first made. These are the beginnings of sorrows, but watch out for yourselves. Now, now notice in verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, Watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, you will be beaten in the synagogues, you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them, 
and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or meditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, one of the problems we have when we read these prophecies is that we make the assumption that the primary people to whom these prophecies are addressed are us. We read these prophecies as if they were written last week, and that Jesus wasn't talking to his contemporaries, wasn't talking to his disciples, but he was talking to us, or at least by extension to us. Now, that's a sound principle insofar as we believe that the application throughout the New Testament of Jesus' words to his disciples comes down through the centuries to every generation of Christians. But again, let us not forget that here Jesus is answering a question to specific people at a specific time in history when they said to him, when will these things take place? And he says, certain things have to take place first. And then he says to them, but you will be brought before kings and rulers and suffer persecutions. Now let me just pause for a second and ask the question. Did that part of the prediction take place, according to the book of Acts, to the contemporaries of Jesus who heard that warning? Yes. I mean, they were indeed persecuted at that time. So watch for yourselves, for they will deliver to you to councils, you will be beaten, you will be brought, you, 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 when they arrest you, and so on. Then verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it not, ought not, let the reader understand, and this is a very mysterious part of the text, <coughs> then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. And unless the, the Lord had shortened these days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he, cho he chose, he shortened the days. Now, here we hear about the abomination of desolation, and we hear about the great tribulation, popularized in the best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And all of the arguments and discussions that go on among Christians today about whether Jesus is going to come before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or after the tribulation. But along with this forecast of a tribulation, and it's all part of answering the question, when will these things be? Jesus gives specific directions on how to avoid the tribulation. 
When you see these things take place, flee. If you're in Judea, head for the hills. Now, what we're going to be looking at in the course of this study is the fierce suffering and tribulation that came upon the Jewish nation in terms of the conquest of Palestine by the Roman armies and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was the first great holocaust of history, where 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered in the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. And one of the things that we know from history that's remarkable is that when Palestine was invaded and the Romans were taking town by town, village by village, before they even began the siege of Jerusalem, and the armies crossed the borders, one of the reasons why there were so many people killed in Jerusalem was that people went to Jerusalem seeking safety behind the massive walls of the great city because that was the normal process in antiquity, that when a, an advancing army came, people fled for the walled cities for safety. Jesus says to his disciples, when you see these things happen, don't go to the city, but go to the hills, which is exactly what the early Christian community did in 70 AD, where the Jews fled to the city, followers of Jesus took heed of these warnings and fled elsewhere. Now, let's continue. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. <coughs> I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then will he gather his angel and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest parts of heaven. Now we see the crux of the problem. We're now Jesus answering these questions when will these things be? What will be the sign of his coming? Now he talks about signs in the heavens, not just signs on the earth. Astronomical perturbations. The sun doesn't give its light, the moon, you know, and so on. And we talk about all of these things as harbingers of the final sign of the coming of Jesus in clouds of glory. Here, Jesus clearly includes his coming in glory as part of the content of this prophecy. And it's that part that later on in the text is included when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So, included in this future prophecy is not just the destruction of the temple and not just the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, but also Jesus' clear prediction of his coming at the end of the age on clouds of glory. And all of these things, he says, are going to take place before that generation passes away. Now, what do we do with this? 
Well, there are several options. The first option is the option that the critics give, namely that Jesus was simply mistaken, that he meant by this generation that living group of people who would last for no more than 40 years. And it didn't happen. He was wrong. The second view of this is to spiritualize the term generation, to mean something other than a time frame reference of 40 years, and it can be indefinite, looking for a literal fulfillment of all of the content. Third option is to take a second glance at what Jesus was specifically talking about in the Olivet Discourse in terms of his coming. Was he speaking about his final coming at the end of time? Or was he speaking of his coming at the end of the Jewish age? Which is not the end of history, because the Bible makes a distinction between the age of the Jews and the age of the Gentiles. Now, more modern scholarship has paid much more attention to this concept of the end of the age than has been done in the past. And, and we're going to explore the possibility that what Jesus is talking about here in the Olivet Discourse is not his final appearance at the end of history, but his coming in judgment upon the Jewish nation in 70 A.D. But we'll take that up in our next session. All these cliffhangers at the end of yeah, the day. Yeah. Regarding that first talk, I brought in, this was, I think, when I, I think I read this in 2016 or 2017. It's my favorite book. Whatever year I read it, this was my favorite book that year. Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Machen. Mm. And liberalism is the liberalism he's talking about, not political liberalism, but mm. spiritual liberalism. You know, just that idea that Christianity is, it's all just a big, a big spiritual goo and nothing was actually real or concrete or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the, probably the, one of the best books I've, I've ever read on that. Cause I it, have it, but I haven't read it yet. You you got to read it. He's so it's so readable. I mean, he's just like you. You think he's re he's writing it today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then this one right here is the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, George Peter Halford quotes a lot of Josephus in this. I read that a long time. Ago. Did you? Yeah. Okay. It's been probably ten years, but yeah, yeah. Anyways, that that was that one's really good. And then Dwayne Gardner, why the end is not near. Provocative title. Um, that's that's really good. I mean, this this is this is from uh, Answers in an Hour. So these are just really really mm -hmm. small booklets that you can read in an hour or two and get a overview perspective. But he's taking his time, though. He's mm -hmm. building this case. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, his laboring uh, on all of the other thoughts and philosophies and the history and mm -hmm. all of that, I guess. That's all part of the case. Part yes. of the case on how it's treated, how the gospel is treated, mm -hmm. how the scriptures are treated. Right. How do they know? And I, I guess it's a good it's a good argument to see why yeah. you know the uh, the thoughts around what has to be said in all the discourse are treated like how are those treated they're treated with this this lens or this viewpoint of um, 
the the morphing of Christianity from nineteenth you know nineteenth and twentieth century thought mm. to kind of fit our to fit our lifestyle to fit our culture to fit our right. yeah. you know um, I think they call it contextualization yeah mm. to fit our current ethics and values not right. necessarily the present ethics and values or the, the present even the present mm. audience I guess it, it is common I guess that you know how whenever we read those those passages, we immediately make the mistake of thinking he's talking to us. Mm. Um, because we, we do that with a lot of the Bible, right? We read it mm-hmm. and apply it to our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to the point where you almost remove Israel, mm. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven or whatever. Yeah. I know the plans I have for you and all that. Is it, just, it just gets immediately appropriated to contemporary. Well, but even Jan- Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. God's great promise for mm-hmm. knowing the, knowing the plans was Absolutely. that just to the person who heard it, mm-hmm. or was it just to the person who, who in that in the hearing of that that it was no it's it's kind of like it's, I would hate to fall into the trap of dispensationalism where you're not actually sure well what part of the Bible actually is for me mm-hmm. you know it's like well it's actually all for you because you're one of God's children. Mm-hmm. And so you, you don't get to just read it blindly and just say, yep, yeah, uh, looks like I'm supposed to march around Jericho, you know, that kind of thing. But it's, but it's kind of like when, when Jesus says, you know, if somebody makes you walk one mile, walk two, he's talking to you. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, don't just say that was just <clears throat> for the first century person, listener. Mm-hmm. That's like, that is, he's talking directly to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that you have to be. I guess you know there's some care in that needs to be taken in applying the right amount of context mm-hmm. right to the audience. Sure. Yet you know still applying God's word as it applies generically to all right. of us as believers. Yeah. But but definitely, I think that the one that's hardest to break yourself of is the prof- prophetic stuff in the New Testament. Reading that prophetic stuff in the New Testament, it's so hard to break yourself of the conditioning of saying, oh yeah, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's famine, there was an earthquake last week, this must mean... <laughs> yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. I, I loved how he he just pulled out the totally obvious thing, the, that whole totally obvious thought that um, Jesus was, he was answering a specific question that had been brought to him. Mm-hmm. So he, he wasn't just prophesying. He was prophesying, but he was prophesying in an, as an answer to a question. And so they ask a specific question. He gives them a specific answer. They're supposed to understand it in a way that is different than we're supposed to understand it. Mm-hmm. We're reading about what happened, but we're not reading Jesus' response as like, oh, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. This mm-hmm. is more like we're just reading what happened. It's just, it's like, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, yeah, that's what happened to them because they they tempted the Holy Spirit. They lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and God struck them down. It's historical fact. Remember it, and you know, believe it, and yep. don't do the same thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> don't name your kids, Anna. <laughs> that's right. Or Sapphira. Oh, right. Or just the fact that he just tells them, you know. Oh, that was the other thing, was that he, not only was, did he tell them, see, that's the thing, is that when we think about the tribulation, it's the popularized idea of the tribulation is that there's tribulation everywhere at all times during that whole 
whatever, however long the tribulation goes. But Jesus totally tells them how to avoid the tribulation. Mm-hmm. Like I never, I never really considered the fact that Jesus says this is how you can avoid going through the tribulation. Yeah, it's it's hard for me, you know, thinking about some of this. It's a little bit hard to read some of it and not think, well, how can that not be more future mm. leading when he talks about no such, you know, when he says no such thing will ever happen since has happened mm. on the whole earth, you know, and it's like, this is a big deal. Right. But, but I guess I'm kind of coming back around to that fact that like, okay, he's talking about the Jews and the Jewish nation and Israel. Mm. When, when else have they ever experienced you know, mass slaughter or a reduction of their 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 sovereign nation, their God established nation, I right? Guess, then that has not doesn't exist. So, yep. in that context, it makes sense. That's really good. That, I'm glad you brought that up because I've heard people argue like, well, the present day Holocaust was worse; more Jews died, but not these Jews. They may be ethnic Jews, mm-hmm. but they're not. They're not. They're not the Jewish nation. Right. They're not the Jewish nation in in of Abraham, in, Isaac, and Jacob. Exactly. Yeah, the theocratic nation. Of the, but not. But not only that. But they're not God's chosen people. They are part of God's chosen people if they trust Christ, because God's chosen people are now us, the church. Yeah. The church is God's chosen people. The nation of Israel, like right now, the nation of Israel has every you know, has every call, maybe I'm not, maybe I'll just speak this and maybe you guys will tell me if you like, you know, agree or disagree. The nation of Israel today is no different than the nation of Iran or the nation, uh, you know, the, the nation found in Iran or, or the nations found in China or in Africa. They are under the sovereign call to the gospel like the rest of us. And if they choose to ignore that call, they have no covenantal promises promised to them. Those promises are now to God's people, which are the, is the church, and can be made up of Jews. That Jews are not excluded. Jews should come to Christ, but there isn't that dispensational Plan B or that you know those two paths going on. I don't think. I don't. I don't see that. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the Old Testament. Uh, as soon as they entered the land, they started being unfaithful yeah. and and they would repent and come back and go through the whole cycle again and again and again uh, and you see that throughout history it's bothered me for a long time that you don't see any kind of Jewish revival in 1947 mm. and it, it raises huge doubts in my mind about what you commonly hear mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. It's just the nation. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, statistically, <clears throat> Israel has more atheists per capita than any other, any other country. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, the world's largest gay pride parade is in Tel Aviv. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a little tidbit I didn't know. <laughs> how, how does the... <clears throat> excuse me. How does, how does the, the remnant, as we understand it, fit into the... You mean Romans eleven? Are you talking yeah, about like yeah? And and the other the other citations in the word that talk about you know there there are I have seven thousand who have oh right or whoever mm-hmm. you know there's God always he's he has a remnant that, that yeah he 
he has it, you know. So I, how does that, I need to understand that. The way I would look at that is the same way that, that I would look at the, 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 the way the gospel spreads out into all the world, into every corner. There is not, there will not, mm-hmm. there is not a, a part of our, our world that um, is not under the call of the gospel and needs to hear the call of the gospel. And in every one of those nations, there will be plenty who choose the wide path to destruction. Who reject the gospel. And reject mm-hmm. the gospel, yeah. at least certainly initially. Um, and that God will always preserve in all of those nations, you know, mm-hmm. righteous men for himself. And so in that case, just like Ron was saying, the nation of Israel is just a nation. It's their legitimate nation. I'm not they're as legitimate as any nation, but they're not... They're no longer God's like special people. I, I think of the parable of the vineyard and, you, you know, you, you can't put everything, you can't hang everything on a parable because it's a parable. But what, what the master of the vineyard says is that I will give my vineyard to another. You know, we will, mm-hmm. we'll take it from the, we'll, we'll take it from these people, these caretakers. Mm-hmm. I'll give it to someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not, that's not uh, to say that there is like, um, like a wholesale divorce. Some people, and, and I'm not rejecting this idea. I just have I'm not familiar with it enough to be able to advocate for it. Some people advocate for an idea of like God divorcing the nation of Israel and just completely, you know, just divorcing them, turning away from them, and, and to provoke that jealousy that wrote, that Paul talks about in Romans. I don't think I see that as much as I see God simply opening up the, you know. Um, uh, the citizenship of heaven to the whole world, and of which the Jews have to get have to get in the exact same way that the rest of us do, which is through through saving faith in Christ. And I, I feel like you could almost consider the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, referring to that, that is God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Yes, I mean you could call that a divorce if you wanted sure. to, because Absolutely. he is no longer you know yeah. their God only, you know, mm-hmm. their, their nation, mm-hmm. his nation only, it's like, okay, we're done. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was judgment right. on Israel. Guess what? The gates are open. Yeah. Here's, mm-hmm. you know, you're welcome to come if, as yeah. well as anyone else. Yeah. You know. So as Paul's comments about, um, if the, I forget the, the details, but anyway, the failure of Judaism was a blessing for mm-hmm. Gentiles. <clears throat> What will their return be? Mm-hmm. Is there a future return of a nation? Right. Uh, I use the term loosely. I don't think it has to be a nation the way we think of nation. Sure, but but an ethnic group that that is a uh, representative hmm. of, of of that is that. It seems to me that that is still coming at us. But I'm not that yeah. thoroughly familiar with scripture and, and how to understand all that stuff. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think about like a guy like Richard Dawkins, who just is rabidly anti-God, and I think, man, what would happen if God just chose him and just changed his heart and made him like a like Paul, just a an ambassador mm-hmm. for Christ? And what a what a blessing that'd be for Christians. We would <laughs> we would embrace a guy like that with open I think we would with just mm-hmm. wide open arms. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about nations and I think about the least likely nations to embrace the gospel, I think, of course, of maybe like highly Muslim nations or, or you know, uh, Hindu nations or that kind of thing. And just think about like if 
the nation of Iran was to become primarily Christian. That would be an encouragement and a blessing to the rest of the world. You see China, I, I, you hear that China has more Christians than America does. I don't doubt it. Um, so I wonder if it's kind of like that with the Jews, because the Jews are more atheist per capita. They're, they're a highly, um, you know, they're not a God-fearing people uh, in general mm-hmm. uh, right now. So when they do come back and embrace Christianity, maybe it will be in, maybe the blessing is, is that here's a people that were so far from God and now they're embracing God again. Look at the, look at the glory God has brought for himself. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly, yeah. but. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I know there's just a, a real strong general aversion in the, the evangelical world to the replacement theology. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I understand that. And sure. like you, I don't, um, you know, I don't have a firm enough grasp uh, to tie in the Olivet Discourse with the portions of Revelation that deal with that. I, hmm. you know, that's one of the things I'm excited about what we're doing here right now right. on these Thursday evenings um, to kind of help me flesh this out. Because I've been content to not necessarily be in a hot pursuit of eschatological, hmm. eschatology, you know, but, um, you know, I hear Ritterboss already, not yet. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. It really makes a lot of sense to me. And so now it's just a matter of, you know, I just want to, you know, I want to be cautious about mm-hmm. it as far as, because I want to, I want whatever I think about this, I want it to be right. Yeah. Regardless of whether it's RC or whoever's talking about it. You know, Deuteronomy 29 says the secret things of God belong to God, but he's going to reveal these things to his people, to mm-hmm. us, you know. And so I'm, I'm counting on that, you know. God promised us that. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, I think what we're talking about here. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Yeah. An interesting observation. Mm-hmm. It makes good sense when you think about it. Just flushing it out is virtually impossible mm-hmm. at this point. In time. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, to me, I don't feel like that. I mean, that has really, has to have an indication that there's going to be some some actual, you know, Israel, you know, remnant nation of Israel that somehow has this higher blessing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of like the prodigal son. You know, they they fall away, but then how over how overjoyed will we be when they come back? Mm-hmm. You know, right. for those that are chosen, mm-hmm. it says that for those that are elect, you know, that they will, you know, not that they've fallen and have been defeated, but that mm-hmm. they might get up again and return to come, return yeah. to God type thing. I think replacement theology, and I'm not totally sure on this, but I think replacement theology is is kind of a name that has been thrust upon covenant theology, mm-hmm, yeah. as opposed to like one that, that covenant theology uh, people would necessarily embrace. Because like, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it replacement as though God's like popping one of the people out and putting a new people mm-hmm. in, although it does say... One, one branch was taken out and another branch was put in. So, I mean, I suppose in one, in one sense you could say, well, it's Romans, Romans 11 clearly shows that we've replaced the Jews. But that doesn't mean the Jews can't get grafted back in. Right. You know, well, he took them out. And wild olive right. got grafted yeah. in. 
and uh, what's wrong with putting a natural olive back in? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Paul cautions about being arrogant about it and all that. And, and I think the, the big thing, to answer the whole replacement, I guess you didn't even ask a question on that, but just as I'm thinking through the replacement theology idea, is that um, God always keeps his promises. Mm -hmm. And so for people who see the covenant theology idea and they think, wait, how can this be true? God always keeps his promises. And, and you're telling me he's, he's booting Israel out and putting new people in. I, I think, though, what's happening is that, like Luke was saying, he's just opening it up. He's, he's not saying, okay, Israel, you are now not allowed to come. Mm -hmm. He's saying your heart's too hard to come anyways. And so we're going to open it up to all these wild olive branches that are going to receive me. Sure. Amazing. You know, you think about the two times, you know, there's two, two ways in which Jesus is amazed in the New Testament. It's always these two things. He's always amazed at the belief of the Gentiles, their faith, and he's always amazed at the unbelief of the Jews. He's always, he marvels at how they don't believe, right. and he marvels at how the Gentiles do believe. So you've got like this ready and waiting world that are ready to, to embrace the gospel, and Jesus basically says, okay, we're going to bring it. We're going to graft these wild olives in, and we don't get, we don't get to be arrogant about that because <laughs> we were just grafted in. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I... Part of the way I think about it is, I would ask, was Abraham elect? Sure, sure seems like he was to me, right? I, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm. He was. A, I think he was a pagan, and God called him out of his exactly. paganism. So yeah. I, I kind of, you know, you were, you mentioned elect. I, the application there is, is it transcends a, the nation or mm -hmm. the the church? Although the church now we understand the church to encompass. Those that portion of the nation that was elected, right? Know, or whatever. I don't know if I'm thinking along the right lines, but yeah, I don't feel like you have to draw any lines of separation yeah. between elect Israel is elect and the elect, yeah. yes, or any of that. It's right. all it's all one body. Elect is elect, elect exactly. is elect, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, the, I guess the big thing though is making sure that there aren't two lines, making sure that there aren't two paths, that there right. God mm -hmm. is not working in series with two different people groups. God is God has started the covenant at the beginning of the Bible. And it's the same covenant all the way through. Once for all. Once for all. Mm -hmm. Salvation has always been through Jesus Christ. Amen. Always yep. been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we look back in faith. The patriarchs look forward in faith. Yeah. That's yeah. the only they, difference. They Don't be like the tribe put their, They put their hope in the promise. I mean, exactly. Period. And they didn't, they didn't vacillate from it. You know? Yeah. And the reason they didn't vacillate is because God... God. Yeah, and I, I think Old Testament, you know, you can look at the stuff like, you know, the tribe, the Korahites and stuff. And it's like, okay, well, was all of the nation of Israel elect or saved? You know, you start thinking about these two different things. It's like, mm -hmm. nope. <laughs> yeah, that's Both, right. Yeah. These ones are getting swallowed into the earth. Yeah. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, or, or just like, uh, where does Paul, is it in Corinthians where Paul talks about how God was not pleased with most of the of your forefathers in the wilderness? You know, they, they all had to die in the wilderness before... Israel 2.0 could make it into the promised land. Yeah, they failed before they got to the promised land, right? <laughs> right. So, yes. Uh -huh. There are unconditional promises, and there are conditional promises. Yes. I mean, the, every time a new king arose in Israel after David, it says, if you will be obedient to the word of God, your sons will follow you. Mm -hmm. And until Jesus... 
a man was always alive, not always sitting on a throne, but mm -hmm. a descendant of David was always there. And Jesus was the ultimate descendant of David. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that that promise was conditional to individuals, but unconditional in the ultimate sense mm -hmm. of right. Jesus Christ. Yeah, a covenant, is, a covenant offers blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Yes. Every covenant does. Every covenant God ever makes says, if you do this, blessings will come. If you don't do this, mm -hmm. curses will come. And so when they didn't time and time and time and time again, the curse is finally like, it's like, okay, it's the ultimate curse. 70, 80. <laughs> yeah. Denying Jesus. Right. You know, it's very compelling that, you know, RC is talking about Christ returning in judgment in 70 AD. Yes. And you see the end of the era, the, the Jewish uh, age. age and the commencement mm -hmm. of the church. Um, you know, that's very compelling and it's mm. and it, um, very provo you know, very provocative for me to think about that. Um, Getting our mind around some of the some of the the ruts that we we just naturally fall into is mm -hmm. is is tough. Like that passage, um, I'm just drawing a blank on where it is in the gospel, but it talks about uh, it, it may I can't remember if he just talked about it in in Mark or if I'm thinking of the one in Matthew where it talks about you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds uh, on in and I think that I, I know that for me that's always that's always. It's hard for me not to think second coming. He's riding on the clouds. He's coming down to us. But, you know, first he could come in, come in judgment, in a in spiritual judgment. Like if we, we ask, Lord Jesus, come, send your spirit. Send your spirit to help us obey you. Send your spirit to forgive us of our sins. Mm -hmm. That's Jesus' spirit coming to us. And that's, that's mm -hmm. a real, it's not just a spiritual thing. He's literally, he indwells us. He's yeah. actually inside us. Mm -hmm. But there's also like, when he, when he ascended in glory, that was him coming on the clouds. He just wasn't coming here. He was coming mm -hmm. into his yeah. king. You know, he was coming into his, in the, mm -hmm. into his glory. Um, and into so it's kind of like, what's that? Into the session in heaven. Exactly, exactly. So, so we think of, well, it's all about me, right? So he's got to be coming to me. No, he's coming, but he's, yeah. you, you know, it might be his ascension too. Mm -hmm. That uh, yeah. um, It's kind of like that whole like, oh, yeah. go ahead. I was just wondering what they mean, you know. What, what I have to think about, like, what, what is it? What do they really mean? What are they meaning then when you will see him coming in the clouds? Mm -hmm. like, that means their perspective, they would see him coming, right? I mean, because he's talking to his disciples at that time. Is that, but that could be that could be thunder, mm -hmm. maybe, or or uh, you know, God spoke in thunder and lightning a lot in the Old Testament. I mean, could that be? I don't want to die on this hill, but I think. It's been a while since I've looked at this. I think the way it's been explained to me is is coming in the clouds was his ascension. And so his so obviously there's decades in between his coming and the actual destruction the actual of Jerusalem. Destruction of mm -hmm. But God's not beholden to our time yeah. timelines the way we are. Yeah. I could be wrong on that, so I'm not gonna die. And, and RC's gonna talk about that, I think. He's yeah. gonna talk about the language used figurative versus literal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting the dispensationalists are they're all about liter literalness and you know, but they kinda of pick and choose too what what's literal. This generation's definitely uh, spiritual. So, <laughs> so so anyway, I mean he's he's gonna talk about 
the yeah. language used and hmm. and okay. that I, I it's, it's very interesting <coughs> you know yeah that wasn't that wasn't the mark set chapter here that he was reading from mm-hmm. anyway yeah I, I I don't know what I think about that I guess yeah completely it's like it's like the whole left behind idea we think of left behind because of the book series of course as mm-hmm. being the ones who Jesus leaves behind but if you read that particular passage in Matthew 24, the one who's left behind is the one who was spared. Because the one who was taken, the, the disciples asked him, where, where are they taking him? They're taking him to where the vultures gather, basically where, where the dead bodies rot. So it, it, that, that's just like one example of training your mind out of the ruts that they fall into. You think left behind means, oh, I don't want to get left behind. Well, in this case, you actually do want to get left behind because where they're taking the one that isn't left behind not a good place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'll look into that coming in the clouds more too, Luke. Because even now, obviously, I'm not uh, super, super comfortable with even advocating for it. But mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Yeah, I need to look at that a little bit more too. So.